Good morning, Sterling Fox with you. About to introduce our first guest of the day, and by way of doing so, let me quote from the article he's just written recently at theconversation.com. An important debate is brewing about free speech at the Olympics. After years of the International Olympic Committee restricting the free expression of athletes at the Games, some prominent athletes are calling for the unlimited right to speak freely, including the right to protest. This is all part of an article entitled, The Olympics are on the wrong side of history when it comes to free speech. Ironically, of course, the Olympics are about to take place in Tokyo. Our guest understands what the Olympics in Tokyo are like. He represented Canada on our track and field team at the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo. It's a real pleasure to welcome Bruce Kidd to the program. Mr. Kidd is a professor emeritus now at the University of Toronto and a a lifelong runner and a member of Canadian Olympic history. Bruce Kidd, good morning and welcome, sir. Well, good morning to you. Thank you very much for that generous introduction. Well, it's a pleasure. We are contemporaries, and I do remember the gangly kid from Ottawa dazzling us, Bruce, just dazzling us during the 60s. It's great to have you on board. Uh, Tokyo, Let's before we get to the, the whole free speech issue, Bruce, you were there in 1964. You were writing your, your newspaper in the Olympic Village. It, the town was just absolutely popping. Now, here we are, lo these many years later, returning to Tokyo. There will be no one in the stands. It will be perhaps the quietest Olympics ever recorded. What do you think is going through the minds of athletes heading from all over the world to this prospect? Well, I think they're trying to uh, put that aside, Uh, but it is very sad. I'm sure it weighs on them. Uh, I know that uh, athletes always prepare for competing before huge crowds at the Olympics often larger than you'd you'd ever performed before. And this will be the reverse, competing Mm -hmm. before empty stadiums. So there will be a disappointment there, but uh, they're trying to focus on uh, their last last, uh, preparations and get ready for their events. And and There's a lot to put out of mind for these games, that is for sure. But Mm -hmm. the ones I know in Canada are determined to make the best of them. Well, and there's two, there really are two personality types, too, are there, in terms of performances. There are those who will welcome the opportunity to really just zoom in on the task at hand and completely focus on performance. Then there will be the other personality type who will really miss the energy provided by the spectators, the buzz from the room, and, and, it, and it motivates different people differently, doesn't it? That's exactly it. I mean... Uh, a crowd can really buoy you. It can carry you. Uh, if you love uh, showing off your best for other people, to have a huge crowd there is such a boost. Um, it, there's there's a reason why they they uh, they talk about uh, it as the sixth player in basketball or the sixth mm-hmm. player in, in 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 hockey because the crowd is is there. So for those uh, for those of us who uh, benefit from a crowd, uh, it, it's going to be uh, another challenge. 
Bruce, I want to zoom in on this wonderful piece you've written at The Conversation, provocative and interesting and challenging. A couple of quotes, and then we'll talk about it. One, free speech is an internationally established human right. It's not something that should be conferred or denied by a vote. The majority should never be able to silence the minority. And yet, in the Olympic movement, there's something called Rule 50 designed precisely to silence athletes. So, Bruce, by way of understanding your point about the Olympics and free speech, we need, first of all, to understand what Rule 50 is, the rule that stifles free speech. What is that? Well, Rule 50 is a long-standing rule, although it's been revised several times. I think uh, when I was around, it was Rule 51. And it's to ensure the decorum and the respect and the dignity of, uh, of the Olympics and, and the Games. I think it was always well-intentioned. But um, it, uh, it prohibits uh, free speech. It prohibits uh, personal self-expression. And on occasion, it has been used to, uh, to really crack down on just about any kind of, of, of open expression by, by athletes and others. It's been used to tell athletes they can't signify their, uh, their gender identity or their, their culture in their fingernails or what they wear. Um, and, 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 uh, and these days when uh, the world is such a, a challenging place, uh, it makes your your job a little easier because there's always something interesting to talk about. But mm-hmm. for the for for athletes who are uh, are 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 part of that world, some of them want to be able to speak their their views. Many of these challenges affect sport, affect their day to day involvement, and they want to speak out. And interestingly, the IOC has spent the last two years wrestling with how to liberalize. Uh, relax rule 50 to allow right. more of that speech um, and uh, and they have uh, they have uh, eliminated uh, most of the earlier prohibitions and it, and and they've done that in in what is an admirable worldwide uh, discussion uh, or consultation with athletes um, so all of that is, is is encouraging and commendable, but they've right. they, they've maintained two restrictions. Uh, one is about the field of play. After after the opening whistle or kickoff, uh, you can't do any of those things. And um, and in the ceremonies, whether the opening closing ceremony uh-huh. or on on the you know on the victory podium, and and my view is. Um, is that they should go all the way. Uh, my 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 guess, and it's also my hope, is that if they remove that restriction, it won't be a target, uh, and uh, and uh, and and people will 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 res- for the most part respect the views of of others, not to disturb or disrupt. But if there if there are issues that are of such significance or concern that people feel they need to express themselves, that they, they should be allowed to do so. As you quoted, I don't believe that the majority should ever, even if the majority has a, a view that, that I support, I don't believe mm-hmm. it should ever be able to stamp out the expression of, uh, of a member of the minority. 
Bruce, for many of us, the memory of, and I'm thinking it's the Mexico City games in the 1970s, and you're talking about podium uh, demonstrations, and there were two uh, United States Olympians who won, who medaled in the same event, and uh, they were both black athletes, and at the presentation of the medals, both men raised their fist in a sort of salute of uh, a, a political, it was definitely a political statement, uh, and, 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 and shocked the world because it, we hadn't seen that type of dramatic uh, and very explicit political statement made. And it was shocking. You recall this quite clearly, and the whole world went, holy cow, are, they're not supposed well, to do that, are they? What was the punishment, was, if any, at the time? Do you recall? Well, I think for me, that's a very telling uh, example. Uh, I supported their protest, although I didn't make the Olympic team, but I was part of um, I, I, I was a marginal member, but I was a supporter of the Olympic Project for Human Rights. I was a graduate student in the United States at that time, and, mm-hmm. and I was persuaded by black teammates uh, and coaches that the, the, the overt uh, racism uh, in the United States needed to be confronted. Right. The, the, US, the U.S. Olympic team had used American performances in international competition to, to say to the world, listen, there's no discrimination in the United States. Uh, we've got all these black champions. Uh, this is a, so they wanted to, they wanted to, to uh, contest their, their use as American propaganda. Right. And, and it was a long and difficult debate. It occurred all summer, summer right. long and so on. But, but, but what they did on that podium is that, I mean, I think you could read it as a respectful uh, statement uh, well, it against was, It was certainly dramatic. Bruce, Bruce, I'm sorry to interrupt, Bruce. I, I'm just getting the word that we, we have to go, uh, and, we, and we need to take a news break. And we'll just pick this conversation right up where we left it. Ladies and gentlemen, Bruce Kidd. Mr. Kidd is now a professor emeritus at the University of Toronto. He is, during my lifetime, one of Canada's best track and field runners, member of our Olympic and Commonwealth Games teams in the 60s, and here to talk to us this morning about a piece, uh, and of course, Bruce represented Canada in the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, and here we are just a couple of weeks ahead of the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. And Mr. Kidd has written a piece called The Olympics are on the wrong side of history when it comes to free speech. And Bruce, just before the Olympics, or before the news break, rather, we got into this, this, the story and, and you used the picture of the, the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City in which two American track athletes, like yourself, uh, were awarded medals. And during the medal ceremony, the two American track athletes, the gold and bronze medal recipients uh, raised their fists, gloved fists, in a, a, a defiance, a salute during the playing of the United States National Anthem. I remember this vividly. I remember being quite impressed by it. And I also remember my parents being absolutely shocked outraged by the behavior well it it was quite a mixed reaction and you were talking just before we went into the news break about the significance of that because they there's there are statues erected to those two athletes in places in the united states so the reaction and the the historical uh, fallout from that event continues to this day doesn't it you know that is correct and i think it's really good to go back and look at that photograph uh, many people read that as defiant, as mm-hmm. angry, as a protest, and were bitterly opposed to it. But many black people uh, read that as a very proud 
uh, uh, statement of uh, a pride uh, in in uh, black accomplishments, and uh, and if it was a protest, it was a protest against the poverty and racism that they faced in the United States. Uh, what always troubled me about that, uh, and troubles me to this day, and it's very it's very useful in this discussion, is that they were kicked out of the Olympics. They were expelled for the rest of their lives for that. Right. And right. so the, the the message was that uh, the Olympics are opposed to to the, the, are in favor of poverty and they're in favor of racism because uh, we kicked out uh, two outstanding athletes who just wanted to, to to protest against that. the The protest became the story. Uh, the pun- the punishment became the story. Right. And I think. I, I mean, look back to uh, 18 months ago when the NBA players uh, adopted Black Lives Matter. Uh, if if it had, if their protests had been read the way Tommy and John's protests, they the games would have been killed, and there would have been just such tension and uh, and and such conflict. But people realized that this was um, you know a poignant, valid statement. It wasn't, I mean, it was probably defiant in its, its impetus, but it wasn't, you know, it didn't disrupt. It was, it right. was, and, and that's how I think we should read these protests today. And I, 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 I honestly believe that if, if, uh, if, if they're allowed, um, rather than focusing on protests on the podium and so on, Athletes will will begin to use other mechanisms to get their views views known. I mean, one of the reasons why athletes protest uh, that way is that they've been shut out of decision making. Now right. the IOC has begun to have consultations widely. Maybe they'll open up decision making. So again, there'll be more of a conversation and less of a polarized uh, uh, contest about this. Bruce, I suppose the concern would be, and I'm I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here from no, from, from the I, from the IOC perspective. The the reason the that protest, the gloved fist protests, was so stunning and so remarkable was its simplicity. There was no there, as you there was no demonstration. It was simply a human being standing with a raised fist. That was, and of course, it was during a national anthem. But it, it there was no. It was so simple. Now, the concern would be that if that sort of very, very simple demonstration was to be tolerated, well, then perhaps would want to take it to and pull out a flag or uh, some kind of visual aid. And then we're over, we're, we've crossed yet another line. So, uh, and, well, I think- and I'm not, I'm not defending the IOC position on this. I'm just saying that the, the concern would be the degree to which the demonstration is taken. I agree with that. I, I, I agree with the concern, but my 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 fear is that it's going to be too hard for them to define, you know, what's objectionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a piece of clothing? Uh, is it uh, you know a hat worn the wrong way? Uh, and once they do that, they're down the Tommy Smith, Don Carlos of of of, of investigating and, and and policing people. Right. Uh, and I think that's too too difficult i think that if they open it up the athlete's culture and and the and the culture will will affect behavior and and people will only do that when there are terrible conditions 
to uh, to to object to. In terms of the powerful symbolism, and I agree with you about the symbolism of that, mm-hmm. I would like to see the IOC in its ceremonies uh, create symbolism that 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 reinforced in, in a much more powerful way the Olympic movement's opposition to xenophobia, racism, right. sexism, homophobia, and so on. And so, and, and so that in those very, very powerful ceremonies, they come up with simple gestures that will show this is what we, we, we believe in. And, and I would do that on general principles, but I also think that if they did that, there would be far less reason for... Uh, for athletes to take it into their own hands. Bruce, I want to zoom in on one little uh, article, or one item, rather, in your article, and this just this speaks volumes to what uh, can and cannot be said. And again, I'll quote, when the Canadian skier Lori Graham likened herself to a cruise missile flying down the hill to a World Cup victory, I asked her not to use a metaphor of death and destruction for a peaceful activity like sport. She quickly agreed, which thrilled me, but then she said, she didn't want to get in trouble with her sponsors who told her to avoid controversy. So we're back to the Rule 50 thing. The athlete uh, sort of reined in out of a need to uh, 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 enjoy the support of one's sponsors. And yet, uh, I I really like the fact, I thought the cruise missile thing cracked me up. But I understand why. What was your role in the Olympic team movement that you were able to Ask her to modify her speech at that well, time. Well, I knew I I knew her, I knew her, I admired her. Uh, I uh, and I mean that 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 was that was a moment at a time when athletes believed they should be non-controversial and not say anything that right. would upset anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, Michael Jordan famously said, uh, "I'm not going to say a word about politics because Republicans." buy shoes too so um but it upset me it upset me terribly that this this remarkable beautiful uh athletic oh did we just lose bruce on uh, did that just drop out phil uh oh okay we just uh we're on a cell call uh to bruce kid in toronto who for some reason probably went to get something from the kitchen (laughs) And boop, it just dropped out. We're talking about an article that Bruce has written. It's available right now, and you should check it out. It's it's an easy read. It's called The Olympics Are on the Wrong Side of History When It Comes to Free Speech. And Bruce Kidd, of course, now a professor, a retired professor in the School of uh, Physical Education at the University of Toronto, but a longtime track and field athlete with the Canadian team. Uh, just finishing up here, Bruce. I'm sorry, we just lost okay. you for a second. Well, I just wanted to say that, you know, it was... It was uh, that that was a I mentioned that in the article to illustrate the the earlier culture. But right. the story you're telling about is that is that I don't think and, and you know, Lori could have said, I think cruise missiles are, you know, are really important in the defense of uh, of Canadian, uh, you know, Canadian sovereignty and everything else. I, I mean, I, I, that was just a personal concern of mine at the time. And because I. I knew her. I just got in touch with her and said, "Hey, uh, if you're going to talk about your your tuck coming down a hill, uh, use another image." <laughs> and she was okay with that, right? Probably didn't think about she it. Was so okay she was okay with that, and, and I it. hope she's not. You know, I, uh, I mean, uh, and and you, 
you're out there with, with, with Whistler and, and Blackcomb and so on. I mean, athletes coming down these hills at this breathtaking speed and doing all these, it, it's really exciting to see. And it's human expression. It's not, it's not uh, destruction and death. So Absolutely. that was my, my take then. Bruce, uh, almost out of time here. Are you expecting any controversy in Tokyo? Of the, uh, there's nobody to to be uh, to demonstrate to in the stadium, but of course the the event will still be carried on the television networks of the world. Are you expecting moments of expression that perhaps the IOC will see as controversial in the weeks ahead? That is a great question. There's so much that's troubling in the world today, including. Uh, the treatment of the pandemic in Japan and the conditions under. So I think something is, is possible. I hope those discussions, though, will take place in the, in the village, in discussions among athletes, in the media conferences and, and so on, because they are, com- they are complex. But if, uh, if somebody feels they have to make a statement of one kind or another and they do it in a, you know, a, a respectful and a dignified way. I am completely opposed to hate speech. Then uh, sure. I hope the IOC will say, okay, uh, take a deep breath and go on. Bruce Kidd, thank you for this. A real pleasure to have you on the program and to finally meet you, sir. And uh, I, like you, will be very much enjoying the Olympic Games ahead. Thanks for this this morning. Oh, thank you, too. All the very best. There's Professor Bruce Kidd joining us from the University of Toronto, where he is now a professor emeritus in the Department of Physical Education and, of course, a longtime member of the Canadian Olympic movement. Vaughn Palmer joining us this morning from Victoria. Vaughn, thanks for this. Good morning. Great to have you on the show. Good to be talking to you on the radio again, Sterling. I realize I was thinking this morning I've been listening to you on the radio since I was a music critic and you were on CKLG. So we both started off in rock and roll. That's right. You and Tom Harrison and Jeannie Reed and I used to bump into each other at the strangest places at very odd hours back in the day now, didn't we? Yeah, fortunately, there were no cell phone cameras in those days, so the evidence has <laughs> long since evaporated. That's exactly right. And now here we are, such such credible-sounding people in this new millennium. Uh, this is important stuff, though, Vaughn. And, and it, you know, the government uh, had, had quite a week because, of course, here we are in phase three, and they're very proud of us and themselves for getting there. Uh, and because of all of that, uh, uh, with the euphoria, if you will, of making it to this particular level, uh, your the the column insinuates they 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 let a, they dropped a few balls in the process. Talk, well, walk yeah, us through I the mean, column. We we have Premier John Horgan. I mean, he said it right. I I, I think that the most effective thing you can do uh, commenting on politicians is to quote them. <laughs> and Premier John Horgan said it, right? We got to talking to him in a media scrum about the heat wave and how it swept over British Columbia, but the weather reporters certainly warned us it was coming, the heat dome, and about the wildfires. And the Premier admitted it. He said, well, yeah, we were a a bit jolly, that's his word, jolly, Mm -hmm. a bit giddy, that's his word, about the end of the state of emergency around the pandemic and about moving to phase three of the restart. And so it's John Horgan who said that the government was distracted. And it was mostly John Horgan who was distracted. I mean, he was the one who took the victory lap. 
So I go, well, uh, yeah, but, you know, managing, there have been a succession of crises, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, you look to the government for what it's going to do about it. There was ample warning that we were headed for an unprecedented heat wave. Sure was. We also had ample reporting indicating there was already a crisis in the ambulance service. People Mm -hmm. were waiting hours for ambulances, and people were stuck at home for one reason or another, uh, particularly seniors and so forth, living on their own, and the heat was very, very dangerous for them. We already know from the coroner that we had, her estimate, 500 excess deaths during mm-hmm. the heat wave. So this was something where it was really, really important that the government not be distracted by taking a victory lap, but be focused on getting public health warnings out there, making sure uh, that you know emergency staffing was available for the answering uh, the ambulance service and right. the preliminary evidence suggests that the government um, didn't do as well as it should have and i think because of that it's very very important that we have a post-mortem not just for the purposes of placing blame although i think it will put blame but what can we learn for the next time sterling we know very well this is not going to be the last time we have these temperatures in british columbia well, again, you know, it's the, uh, I suppose the the part that sort of slows us all down and, and makes us go, really, is this whole business of walking and chewing gum at the same time. Yes, we're, we're moving into phase three and yay for us and good for us for, for finally getting there. But in the process of getting us there, there is a whole other a whole other there are other layers of government and administrative functions that need to go on simultaneously that you don't get to stop the whole train to have a glass of wine because you you, you crossed a line everything so i suppose out of this there are two things vaughn that really need to be addressed and i don't know which of the two is more serious but from where i'm sitting the ambulance issue is paramount this weekend don't you think oh i i, I think so the The emergency services, the ambulance service, as we said, there was actually reporting indicating a big problem before that. We had, you know, uh, we've had we've had stories about that for a while. So that's still an issue because um, we're not by any means at the end of the of the public health crisis. And and I know it's a combination of things. It's it's the opioid crisis. It's the pandemic. It's. you know, people getting out and about for the first time in a year and that too. Uh, injuring mm-hmm. themselves. I mean, the, all of that is going on together. But but clearly, uh, you know, people who are waiting, I mean, we've heard the stories, right? The, the family that took the aged parent to the fire station because um, the, the ambulance never came and, and the poor fellow died there. I mean, mm-hmm. these are yeah. not just inconveniences. This is life-threatening problems. And the interesting thing that I find is that um, emergency responders, uh, police, fire, and paramedics, these that's where these stories are coming from. They are so fed up 
and stressed and strained with what they're facing. They're the front lines of dealing with the public. Right. But they're coming to the news media with the stories. I mean, we I've talked to colleagues who are getting the calls and the emails, and and they're you know they did a story last night, and the next day they're getting more, and they're saying, well, why don't you tell this story? And I know yeah. the news organizations are all scrambling to tell those stories because this is really really hard stuff on families and friends. Well, and you're right. You know, the coroner re- reporting that during that heat wave, approximately three times the uh, number of fatalities occurred that would typically occur during that period uh, on any given year. So clearly the numbers, Vaughn, uh, speak for themselves, tragically. A- and again, it's the lack of preparedness. And it, you, you pointed out ever so clearly, and I was part of it. So were you talking about this heat dome and all of this stuff. We, we almost joked about it because we were so clearly warned it was on the way so what's what more indication could a government possibly receive well yeah i mean the weather forecasters were on the ball uh, even if uh, the premier and his government wasn't now we had a a go-round with uh, dr bonnie henry this week and this question came up and with adrian dix the health minister a couple Mm -hmm. of things that came out of that this was thursday Uh, Dr. Henry said when the heat warnings came her way in public health, she did have a meeting of the emergency response team on heat waves in public health, and they actually did get the health regions of the province to uh, move to emergency response level. Um, Okay. I, I wouldn't blame her for the fact, however, that they didn't tell the province. Right. That hmm. the the that all British Columbia didn't know. I would say that I don't remember that, you know, hearing that. And I think a lot of people would say, you know, that they didn't know that starting on the 26th of June. So before the heat wave really peaked, um, the health regions in the province had moved to an emergency footing. The other problem with that, of course, is that the emergency response service in charge of the ambulance service didn't declare an emergency until the following week. So, but, you know, they they did do something. Now, the other thing they told us uh, on Thursday, Sterling, is that the coroner will conduct an investigation, an inquiry under the coroner's statute into each death. So we will have findings from there. I, I'm sure those exercises will be useful and we'll learn a lot. But I think the overall response is something that we still need this independent inquiry on. And that's where I think there, there will be lessons learned. We've had independent inquiries after bad fire, forest fire seasons in the past. I think yes. it would be very useful to have an independent inquiry. I think it would be useful to have an independent inquiry into how we handle the pandemic, but I also think, you know, I mean, public inquiries can be used for political purposes, but they can also be used for fact-finding and lessons to be learned for the future. Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun on the line from Victoria. How the NDP government handled heat wave and wildfires needs to be looked into, a column written by Mr. Palmer a couple of days ago. Uh, lines are open, by the way, if you'd like to join the conversation, 604-280-9898. Vaughn, we've talked a lot about the uh, the response, or perhaps lack thereof, uh, in terms of the uh, the heat wave 
and uh, but we haven't really addressed the matter of wildfires, and of course that's been uh, that really has uh, taken prominence in terms of news coverage. And this morning uh, there is more activity in the Vernon area. We're hearing a new wildfire near Coldstream and and the Vernon area, and uh, the road to Kalamalka Lake in some kind of jeopardy. So, the, the, needless to say, the wildfires and dealing with them is an ongoing situation. What is it about? the handling of everything so far that you saw merits an inquiry? Well, you know, John Horgan took office as premier four years ago, later this month, 18th of July, in the middle of a wildfire crisis. So we had Mm. an inquiry after that one was over, what to be learned. And, And then 2018 was another year of wildfire crisis. And so we had an inquiry after that one. Uh, we got off lightly a little over the next year, but, you know, four years as premier, three years of of wildfire crisis, and this one, as you know, Sterling, has started earlier than ever. So I, I think it is true and obvious that when the season is over, there will have to be another lessons learned, and did we do all that we should have done in the past? And I think mm. it, it not, won't surprise anybody that we have to do more because, you know, the one thing you have to say about the the fire that destroyed Lytton is it swept over them in a matter of minutes. And we're getting wildfires now in British Columbia that are so ferocious they generate their own weather, including Mm -hmm. lightning storms that start more fires. So, you know, there's there's no question that um, we need to do more. And I think on the wildfire thing, uh, I'm inclined to go... um, not so much cut the government slack as to understand that that actually what happened in Lytton, there's really nothing like it. And so going forward, yes, there needs to be an inquiry at the end of this season. Maybe they may call on the people who've done the past ones and say, okay, update us. We've been having these issues in British Columbia for a long time, way back when Gordon Campbell was premier. Remember him, 2003. Mm -hmm. uh, We had a really bad season. He got the former premier of Manitoba filming to come out. What they keep saying is um, we need to reduce the risk, reduce the amount of fuel in the interface zone. That's between uh, settlements where people live and um, where the fires go. And you need to reduce that. But British Columbia is a big, big place. Mm. And even though every year they do a lot of cleaning and brushing and removal and even slash burning where they can get away with it, uh, we haven't done nearly enough. And the, the danger to life and property is in the interface zone. I mean, yes, we yeah. lose an awful lot of trees to fires for other reasons, and you can't go to the parks, and there's smoke over Metro Vancouver and Victoria and all that, but then you get to the real, you know, people losing their homes, and sure. I mean, Lytton is the... I I don't know what they're going to do. As the, as the coverage continues, though, Vaughn, here you, here, for example, now you're seeing quotes from people like uh, this fellow at the vice president of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Quote, Canada lacks a culture of preparedness generally. 
close quote. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, and he's this, the, the insurance bureau is part of climate proof Canada. And they're all about uh, uh, denying climate change. And, and as long as that, uh, as long as there seems to be some controversy about climate change and its effect on things like the fires, uh, then that, that slows everything down. I don't think that's a problem with the NDP in BC though. Do you? No, I don't. Uh, and I, and I think, you know, where the wildfire crisis overlaps with the heat dome is on the issue of climate change. I yes. see a scientific panel saying uh, in the last few days that the, the heat dome wouldn't have happened without climate change. It was 150 times more likely to have happened because of climate change. So, uh, you know, drier forests, hotter weather, fires. And you're, you're right. The the BC, the New Democrats, it took them a little while to get in step with things like the carbon tax, which right, the yeah. Liberals brought in, but uh, they are now heavily engaged in uh, resisting, fighting, managing climate change in British Columbia. And again, we're a big, big place and we're vulnerable. And yes, a lot more needs to be done. So I, I think a, a post-wildfire season review of lessons to be learned would be more of an update on the past. Um, right. I think, uh, you know, Lytton is a pretty horrible story, but I also think that the preliminary evidence there suggests that it happened so fast that it is hard to know what could have been done when it was happening. Yes, more could have been done ahead of time to reduce the risk. But while it was happening, I don't think there was much more could be done than get the hell out of air. Yeah. Vaughn, out of time, uh, do you think realistically uh, at some point that we're going to have this inquiry? Well, I think we will have a postmortem on the wildfire season, and I think the coroner will tell us some stuff about all the uh, excess deaths, uh, an overall inquiry into the government's handling of it. Mm. I don't think the NDP is into that, but we'll see. Sterling Fox with Phil Fig on the controls and our guest joining us from suburban Seattle by way of introducing her. Let me just quote this from an article she wrote recently in the New York Times. In the coming years, Amazon will most likely become the largest private employer in the United States maybe even the world. In addition to its U.S. workers, it indirectly commands many more thousands of contracted drivers. This isn't uncommon knowledge, but few Americans have confronted the stakes of Amazon's economic and political dominance, except perhaps in the company's hometown. This is an article, a, a portion of an article entitled Amazon Transformed Seattle. Now, its workers are poised to take it back. The author is Tammy Kim, a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, joining us from Tacoma this morning. Tammy, good morning, and thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Sterling. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Seattle, a big favorite city of a lot of folks up here in Vancouver. We pay a lot of attention to what goes on down there. And of course, it has been over the years absolutely impossible to ignore the presence of Amazon in Seattle. But tell me before we get into uh, the retaking of Seattle by Amazon workers, talk to us in general terms about Amazon and its resistance to the union movement because they have uh, people called union avoidance consultants in most of their installations all over the United States and Canada, don't they? 
They do indeed. And um, some of your listeners probably heard about a battle in Ontario where there was union busting. There's been union busting at almost all of the facilities where um, organizing has occurred, which, you know, is potentially most of the facilities in North America. Um, Yeah, the the article really wanted to look at um, Seattle as a case study and what's happening nationally, but really internationally. And of course, in Vancouver, um, we might now see that as a kind of mini Seattle where a lot of the same patterns have occurred in terms of the treatment of workers, both at corporate and in the distribution and warehouse facilities. Um, Indeed. Yeah, the, the, the sort of ideology that Bezos carries through his various operations is that, um, you know, there should be complete loyalty to the company from workers. Uh, what that's led to is a number of problems, including health and safety, you know, low wages in certain situations, and also just this sort of climate of fear and retaliation against workers who decide to organize with one another. Uh, well, now, uh, and of course, the problem is compounded by the fact that uh, these uh, these uh, locations, uh, these uh, warehouses typically would employ uh, many thousands of workers. And Tammy, the other problem is uh, the the staff at these uh, fulfillment centers or whatever they're called is a very high rate of turnover. So in terms of a, a workforce that's together long enough to come together and make a move to unionize or not, uh, the fact that the work, workforce is turning over so rapidly makes that difficult, doesn't it? Yes, it's certainly a barrier, but really the turnover strategy itself is a kind of union avoidance or union busting mechanism insofar as the company has no real interest in keeping long-term employees, especially in the blue-collar facilities, the fulfillment, sortation, and delivery centers, um, all of which exist in the Seattle area and in the Vancouver area. Um, so, so I guess it depends on the way you want to look at it. I mean, yes, of course, it's very difficult to establish an organize, organizing um, campaign in a situation where you have a lot of turnover, a lot of injury, a lot of people who may just be coming through, um, you know, as temporary workers, which right. or seasonal workers, which is also mm. part of the operation. But again, I think that's also built into the DNA of those logistics operations. Right. I uh, want to talk also very quickly about Seattle uh, and the and and how because you talk about uh, in the article the, the title of the article is how Amazon transformed Seattle. That's the first sentence in the piece you wrote in the New York Times. So let's talk about the transformation uh, because there were the the part of town that uh, Amazon basically Amazonia <laughs> it's in Seattle. It is, <laughs> That's right. It, it, it's a very gentrified version of what was a pretty run down section of town now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Seattle area, of course, has always been home to Microsoft, which was kind of the main, the first main tech company that came through. And now it has, you know, all of these other tech companies. But Amazon is is sort of has become the sort of symbol and avatar of all of the, you know, gentrification. That even seems like too soft a word at this point, Mm -hmm. really a displacement, um, an unaffordability crisis of housing um, that's occurring in the city. So really, since Amazon expanded into its headquarters, which are just north of the most central downtown area, that whole area has been transformed with the sort of knock-on effects that run all the way down Interstate 5 and up Interstate 5. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think Amazon certainly isn't the only company that, that is causing this sort of displacement. And, you know, the, the, the housing crisis, which is the main, main thing that pe- normal people see and suffer from in the area. But it's certainly um, the sort of most ostentatious, obvious, you know, presence in the city that has transformed Seattle from a place that used to be livable for ordinary, you know, lower middle class, working class people. And at this point, truly is not. 
Mm-hmm. So the other sentence in the, that it forms the title of the article, the first one is Amazon transforms Seattle. Second sentence, now its workers are poised to take it back. Precisely how, Tammy? Yeah, so that may be a bit too optimistic of an assessment in the headline, but you know what? What I wanted. But to you do don't write the headlines. Is, we won't hold that part against. That's right. Thank we you so that. much. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, but yeah, I, you know, um, part of what I wanted to do in the story is there was a very high-profile union loss um, in the spring at Bessemer, Alabama, which is a historic steel town, is now dominated by an Amazon logistics facility. Okay. And after that, um, there's been a lot of hand wringing in the U.S. labor movement, which of course at this point, really only has about 10% membership in the U- of U.S. workers, of what is to be done, because Amazon truly is, in every single industry, it is a monopoly threat in you know all of these different sectors. Mm-hmm. It employs a million workers in the U.S. What is to be done? And this is you know true in, in North America and Europe and Asia. There's growing attention to Amazon. And in Seattle, there are some nascent attempts to do organizing. And what exactly that means in the white and blue-collar facilities is not yet clear. What is the answer? How do you get organized a 5,000 person warehouse? How do you get organized, you know, 50,000 tech workers, corporate employees in the white collar corporate headquarters when there are threats of retaliation, when also there are people who are paid very well and are happy to be working at Amazon. So I, I, you know, I wanted to look at, at just some of the things that are being tried, you know, the Teamsters, of course, the historic logistics union, um, in North America is now has now launched a big Amazon campaign committing to a bunch of resources to try to organize in logistics centers. There is white collar organizing in Seattle that has led to walkouts and different kinds of petition campaigns. Mm-hmm. And then I also follow a couple of, of workers who are organizing quietly inside of their own warehouse in the Seattle area. Um, they don't have a formal union, but they're trying to figure out a way to have an organizing committee, which would basically just mean, you know, a group of workers that are committed to one another who would be able to fight for different things that are happening on the job. Yeah. Let me just understand one thing, Tim, we don't have a lot of time left, but uh, if they were to organize and to, to unionize a Seattle or, or um, mm-hmm. uh, Amazon facility, would that fall under federal or state labor law? It's governed by both. It's governed by local, state and federal. Oh, okay. Yeah, but the primary right to organize does come from the Federal National Labor Relations Act, which also during the Biden administration, people are hopeful hopeful will be reformed in a positive direction for workers. Yeah, I was going to say that the Biden administration certainly is more union and labor movement friendly than the previous one. And I was also going the reason I asked about <laughs> yeah. jurisdiction was because is there any role for Governor Inslee and the state of Washington in all of this or are they just spectators? You know, I think in terms of the the worker organizing into unions, there isn't necessarily anything he he might do. Although, of course, you know, I think um, a lot of the the Washington state policies being so so sort of progressive on the national scale have assisted Amazon workers in the sense that there is, there are government agencies locally and in the state that are responsive responsive. You know, in terms of workers' compensation, um, injury complaints at the Department of Labor, this sort of thing. Um, you know, and I think generally. Um, if a state is more friendly towards unions, that is generally good. But, but you know, there, there isn't so much that can be done at the, bureau, the bureaucratic level. So I guess a, a final question, Judy, and we're really grateful for your time this morning, Tammy. Is, is the, uh, the, the likelihood, the likelihood of a, a, an Amazon shop being completely organized and unionized is, I think, quite remote. However, 
the pressure that goes into creating a, an environment in which this is actively spoken about and contemplated in the public forum might at very least cause Amazon to modify its practices towards its workers. Would that be a, a, a halfway point that you could get to? I think that I think that sort of pressure campaign certainly is really important. And there is a lot more awareness of Amazon workers complaints now in the blue collar facilities in particular. But I think also with some of the reforms coming down at the federal level, it isn't inconceivable that some of the smaller sites, for instance, the delivery stations that tend to sit at the the sort of outskirts of major cities could see some unionization, you know, facility by facility. Interesting stuff. Well, it's a, it's a monumental challenge. There's no question about that. Thank you for bringing this to our attention today. It's great to have you on the program. I look forward to an opportunity to talk to you again. Thank you so much, Sterling. Appreciate your it's time. Our- Our pleasure entirely. The the, uh, article uh, caught our attention the other day in the New York Times, Amazon transformed Seattle. Now its workers are poised to take it back, written by Tammy Kim, joining us this morning from Tacoma. Pleasure to welcome Julio Caravetta to the program this morning. Julio has been part of the BC Lions radio broadcast since 2000, and he's finally back in our building for another season or two on AM 730. On this opening day of BC Lions training camp, Julio Good morning and welcome. Good back. morning, sir. How are you? Thanks for having I'm, me. It's uh, wonderful to be back. It's full circle for me. No it's kidding. Where huh? I started. It's, it, it, indeed, it is. It's great yeah. to have you back. Are you in Kamloops this morning, Julio? Or no, are you still down no. here? Yeah, we're still down here. I, I, you know what, Sterling? I think there's still there's restrictions as far as media going out there. I think the first week, uh, I, you know, I mean, from what I heard last. There, you know, media wasn't allowed to be around. You know, they were going to organize uh, Zoom meetings if you needed to, you know, get access to players. But as part of the, you know, return kind of to play, I think the first week they weren't going to allow media, and then there was gotcha. going to be a slow return back. So we're going to head up, I think, towards the end of the month and and uh, try to check it out. And um, excited about it. it was great to hear that uh, that intro there. Uh, it's been a long time since I've heard that, so we're all excited about getting back. I was Dal Richards, too, and Roar, yeah. you Lions, Roar. Hey, too, too much fun there. So uh, yeah. very, very quickly, this has to come and go quickly. XFL did a little dance a few months ago, uh, talked about maybe doing something together, and just a couple of days ago said, mm, maybe not. Probably yeah. a good decision. I old, Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I mean, you just don't want to have those kinds of, you know, talks and and have that still hanging over the league's head as we head into the season i think the cfl did a smart thing you know they tabled those discussions who knows what happens down the road but i think it's a smart decision to just concentrate on on you know on on the cfl game um you know people are excited about having the game back and i think it was a smart move on their part to put it aside and you know talk about the canadian football league no question about it. Now, Julio, this is this is I, I, you're the pro in this conversation. This has got to be tough on the coaching staff because typically in a pre in, in the preseason, you go to training camp, then you have a few preseason games, and then you start the regular season. Yes. The preseason games allow the coaching staff the evaluation time and the time to reduce the 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 component to to the, to the real team. This year, yes. there will be no preseason games how how much more difficult does that make the evaluation and the eventual resolving of who makes the team yeah. on the coaches well that's a that's a very good point and, and and even to expand on that you mean it's going to be difficult on the coaches but this whole process is going to be very difficult because they're, they're, they're in uncharted territory because yeah. 
You know, the players have, have already been, like, a lot of the players that came up from the United States have all been in quarantine up there. They got up there on July 2nd. They had to spend a week up there in quarantine. I think they were right. allowed out, like, for 15, two 15-minute walks. So I think one of the big things is that mental component in all this, right? You're, you're right. You know I mean? You, you break up training camp with a couple of games. You get the travel, um, you know, and, and you get that game feel. But now mm-hmm. those players are going to be up there for almost, you know, for a month being evaluated and it's going to be very very difficult because you've got to be able to walk that fine line of being able to push the players get the best out of them evaluate them but not pushing them or driving them into the ground because that's a big you mean you've got a long season ahead of you you don't want to burn these guys out in a month of training camp so and we saw earlier in the week saskatchewan rough riders even before training camp started they were doing workouts they lost three potential starters four players in total to Achilles injuries. I saw and those, that. Yeah, the, you mean those are devastating injuries. So there's going to have to be a real collaboration between the coaches, I think the medical and the training staff, and also on the mental uh, health of the players, right? You got to think it's going to be really difficult for these guys who have, some of them have never been here. You're getting mm-hmm. put up in Kamloops. You've never been there. So I, it's going to be very interesting to see how it all turns out. But to the main point of your question about, the evaluation, it's going to be difficult. And, you know, the, they're, they're going to have to find ways to, to evaluate, to push these guys to as a, a close to game conditions as they can get. But ultimately, um, you're never going to get that. You're never going to replicate what it is in a game. And we always say when the lights come on for real, uh, that's when you see what a player is really worth. But they're not going to get that opportunity. So um, they're going to have to push them. They're going to have some inner squad games against one another. So that's going to yeah. be something that they're going to watch over, uh, obviously, very carefully. But it's going to be very, very interesting as we head into the season how all the teams right across the board handle this training camp and evaluating players. Yeah. Julio, only a couple of minutes left here and a tough question for you, but a lot of people looking forward to going to Lions games, although a recent poll, as in we're going to talk about it tomorrow with the poll master, uh-huh. uh, but uh, the Lions have dropped off in terms of uh, uh, favorable public appreciation. And I have uh, some of that has to do with really terrible marketing for the past few years on the part of the football team. This is an opportunity after COVID. With an, it's really almost a rebirth of the franchise yes. if they treat it properly. What do they have to do to get fans back in the stands i couldn't agree with you more by the way you know i mean you're, you're absolutely right as one aspect of the game that the lions and, and and the cfl right across the board and this is one of the things i you know i think with all the you know the the, the bad that came with the pandemic and and shutting everything down i think and i hope that it gave the league an opportunity to really try to rebrand themselves right to, yeah. to, and have the teams do all that and you know, you, you you know, we live in a, a you know completely different world now. You know, especially for a guy like me that's a, you know, I mean, I'm I'm older. You know, the, the way you know social media works and all those other platforms, you've got to be able to engage younger fans, and you got to be able to find a way to get them into games. And you know, they have to they have to find the right people. You know, I mean, it, it, you gotta you gotta bring in some some skilled marketing people that know that that brand and ability to go out to the young people and, and attract them. And, and, and you're right. They have a tremendous opportunity. It has been sliding down, but they yep. have an opportunity with people who have been cooped up that want to go out. They want to spend money. They want to go to live events. They want to be outside. So you've got to put, connect. You, you got you exactly. They've got right. that window and they got to make it happen.
Julio, I got to leave it there. This is the first of many appearances, my friend. I'm grateful Thank for this you. morning. We'll we'll hey. have some fun through this football season. Thanks for this. Uh, I really and we'll, appreciate we'll talk it. again soon. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Have a great day. From the BC Lions broadcast team on AM 730, there's Julio Caravetta. With thanks to Jason Manawas, Phil Figueredo, and Greg Schott, I'm Sterling Fox. Thank you for joining us this morning. Back again first thing tomorrow on CKNW Weekend Mornings. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.